As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to a new podcast on the Athletic Network, The Business of Sport. Now, hopefully the title is pretty self-explanatory, but in a nutshell, every Thursday we'll be joined by a panel of the Athletic's brilliant football journalists. We'll have the occasional special guest as well, and we'll go deep into the stories that affect all of us, our clubs, players the game we love we'll discuss owners agents key decision makers we'll take you behind the curtain into the world of football business and we will talk about other sports as well Uh, alongside me each week will be the athletics football news reporter matt slater be fair to say you are a uh, sports news business media <laughs> I, yeah, was gonna well, fanat- well, I was going to say fanatic. I was going to say fanatic, but I wonder whether to say geek. I don't know. Yeah, Which would you then. prefer? Which would you? Well, I don't know. I don't want to be a geek, but uh, <laughs> if I could at all avoid it. But expert, um, expert. Yeah, I'll do. Yeah, I'll there take experts. Go. Do we? Do we? Do we trust experts now? I don't know. But um, yeah, no. All guilty as charged. Well, I like all those things anyway. Yeah, but they're increasingly, increasingly important. Obviously, and they increasingly interlock as well. They've always been important, Mark. It's just that you know, <laughs> football writers, we've, you know, we've we've sort of kind of shied away from that sort of stuff. We sort of thought, well, that's not for us. But look, the the bottom line is, you know, it's a professional sport. These are competitions between companies. You know, the idea that kind of sport and politics don't mix. Well, that's one of the most ludicrous cliches in sports. So that this stuff's always been there. I've always been intrigued by it. I've always wanted to know why teams win, and it's not just that. They got their tactics right on the day, though that often is it. But, you know, why? Why You know, why do they have better players? Why do the same teams sort of tend to keep doing well? Why are certain sports more popular than others? Why are, why are sports badly governed or well governed? I'm intrigued by all of it. It is important to say, isn't it, you know, that whilst it will be predominantly football, that we are determined if the story is in another sport, we go to that sport. Absolutely. I mean, look, I think we all know that football certainly in this country you know it's our national sport we've we've you know we've worked at various places before and football drives the back pages or the you know if you worked at a website whatever it might be but rugby union cricket f1 there's loads of amazing sports out there i mean one of the things that that does interest me is 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 why is football so popular and i sort of get this sense that it's becoming more 
uh, more dominant. It's stealing a lot of the light. And, you know, particularly right now when we're in this sort of period where all sports is shut down, the focus has been football. Football has been the one that's been able to sort of keep going and it has dominated the conversation, whereas some other sports have just been shunted aside. This is supposed to be an Olympic year. This is one of those years where, you know, like a sort of festival of other sports. Well, it didn't happen. It just it just it just got forgotten. And there's been some, you know, some fantastic stuff going on in cycling and, you know, even F1 and, you know, some good rugby union games. But it's just been the conversation around football has got louder. And I think it does make it very difficult if you're a sport that isn't football. And I wonder why that is. Yeah. And actually, the Athletics' Adam Crafton is joining us for this episode as well. And that is a very fair question. I mean, I sit I sit on a couple of boards now. Uh, the Manchester Originals in the in the new hundred uh, tournament, whenever that might take place. Uh, I sit on a board of a charity of women in sport, and actually, even in those early meetings that I have had in with on on those two boards, you know, the question does always come: Why does football dominate? And I actually have to say to them, well, I think it's actually why does the Premier League dominate actually more than more than football dominate? And it's a difficult question to answer, isn't it, Adam? Unless it is purely money. Yeah, I was going to say that's a nice, easy one to come to me <laughs> to start with. No, absolutely. I, th- I think you can probably add the championship into it as well. You know, when you look at attendances in normal times, I think I think what's unique about English football is just the number of highly popular clubs, which just isn't the, really the case in. Spain and France and, and Italy, the, the number of clubs that can draw over 30,000 people into a stadium quite easily, you know, when it's not a pandemic. So I think that's a big aspect of it. I th- you know, we've seen this, which we've spoken about in lots of podcasts, this incredible marketability and repeatability of international broadcast deals, television deals that have just driven the growth and the obsession with the Premier League. And as I'm sure we'll come on to, whether it's this episode, later episodes, how the power of these, you know, not just huge football clubs, but huge organisations, huge corporate beasts in the, you know, particularly Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal now, what that means for football going forward. I think the interest has always been there. I think probably the first decade of this millennium, there was, we almost just fell into all these different takeovers, uh, whether it was Abramovich at Chelsea or you know uh, the first Liverpool takeover with Hicks and Gillette and then FSG, uh, the Glazers. I, I don't think there was ever really this huge public discussion of why, why is this happening? How is it happening? Why, why do they want this thing so much? And I think people are increasingly fascinated by it. And particularly now where money is becoming, well, more, more rare um, in terms of the distribution of money it generally in society is, is more rare and that's mirroring its way into football as well. And I think people want to know more about how and why decisions are being taken. Uh, and that question of why at the moment feels really quite relevant, Adam. You know, you, you're, you've you done an article on The Athletic about, say, you're filthy rich and want to buy a football club. There are a couple of takeovers that are rumoured at the moment. You know, a, there are takeovers surrounding Burnley and, and a lot of people will question, well, why would somebody from abroad want to buy Burnley? And that isn't a criticism of Burnley, but this is a, a a local club entrenched in its community, run locally. Why would someone want to come in and buy that? I think it's a really good question because I, I, you know, for the life of me, I, I don't really, I don't really get at the moment why, if you're looking at a club below the top ten or top eight in the Premier League, 
why you would go and spend, you know, possibly 150 million, 200 million, in some cases far more than that, on an asset that could depreciate in value by, you know, by 50 by 50 odd million, maybe more, if you have a run of 10 bad games and you're relegated from the Premier League, particularly at the moment. So it then becomes a discussion of why do you want a football club in the first place? Is it because you're so rich that you can afford to lose a load of money and have a bit of fun, maybe? Is it because you're trying to build up a nation state in the way that Manchester City and Abu Dhabi we've seen over over recent years? Are you an oligarch who wants you know who wants an asset a bit like buying a super yacht to say I've got a bigger super yacht than they've got? There's all different reasons why you could do that. Then there's another increasingly common thing which I think you know I'm sure Matt has these discussions as well when you speak to investors and investment bankers out in the States at the moment, there is this real positivity about Premier League football in the sense that it has proven a repeatability in terms of international broadcast deals and a potential for growth, that it means you get these sort of Wall Street blue chip investors looking a little bit more closely, whereas I think in the past, it would have been very much very rich individuals. So I think that's the the changing story. And then you see things like the city group. So you've got this group of cluster of clubs around different continents. I think there's a fascination with that at the moment. I'm sure that's something we'll look into more. So there's all these different reasons. As for Burnley, if I was advising an investor, I could not make a compelling case at this moment in time to go and buy Burnley. But maybe Matt disagrees. Uh-huh. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I agree with everything that Adam's just said there about you know why people do this, and some of these reasons haven't changed at all. You know, once upon a time, it was you know your local Mister Big, and it's just the scale that's changed. You know, we've seen the, the the changing nature of ownership in in the top flight. Once upon a time, it was sort of you know predominantly English owned English players. Well, that's not the case anymore. Very cosmopolitan now. Um, English in the minority and it's going to, it's only going to keep going in that direction it's going to happen in the championship as well one thing I would add just as a sort of motivation that's very of the moment and is something that I keep hearing about is sort of this intersection between entertainment and sports and technology and again it's it's one of the reasons the, the why the Premier League has got lucky almost in its timing that it all came together at once and it is just the sort of rocket fuel of of globalization broadcasting costs coming down you know just being you know having kind of brand and history and a bit of passion it just it just it just all it all came together at a wonderful moment now that is still happening okay the domestic deals are starting to sort of level out because you know this is kind of a mature market now sky and bt have kind of cooled off their fight but the premier league is premium content in the same way that the NFL is or maybe Formula One is or you know there's a few brands in whatever strand it might be Marvel Game of Thrones whatever it might be you know that that's the content that that just sells everywhere and you want a piece of that and sports is considered to be cheap still if you want to reach men particularly ABC one men sports just just great and in a, in a, at a time when we're time shifting everything when we're doing box sets or we're watching you know program after program you know on netflix live content that you can't postpone advertisers love it broadcasters love it so sport is considered still to be cheap and then you don't want anything you don't want tier two you don't want like periphery stuff no you want the best stuff the stuff that people will watch in bangalore and boston and everywhere else in between and that is what the Premier League has managed to, to become over the last 30 years. And it's a fantastic British success story. There are pros and cons to it. Of course there are. But that's the compelling USB, you know, why you want to buy into it. Now, the arguments about why you'd look at Burnley, 
or Southampton or West Brom or West Ham or Crystal Palace, any of the other clubs that are rumoured to be for sale, you know, some with genuine sales of signs outside, some with just mm, make me an offer. Why you buy those is really about price, about valuation. Now, the story at the moment is the Chinese money of the last few years is going back home for reasons to do with Chinese politics, the reasons to do with you know China and the rest of the world and China and its plan for football and where football sits in, in China's branding exercise. But American money is rushing in behind. But American money, it's just, it's just totally different. It's just, it's, you know, it's coming from a, an entrepreneurial world where people get into professional sport to make money. They have salary caps. They have uh, mechanisms to distribute the talent. They they don't expect to lose money. I mean, it's just fundamentally different to European football. So, you know, they are looking at valuations, and and U.S. sports franchises are very expensive. So they, again, they sort of think, well, look, live content. We think that's still going to go up. We think there's a lot of upside there. It's really hard, really expensive to buy an NBA team. It's really hard to buy an MLS team, you know, and, and that's not making money. The Premier League is kind of making money, you know, before before COVID, and and we just think we can do it better than them. That's that's another sort of motivating factor that I keep hearing that that yeah, you know, European soccer's great. It's globally significant in the way that our sports aren't, but you don't really know what you're doing commercially, and we do. So we're going to go in because it's cheap and going to show you how to do it. But then also, they may accuse us, or the Europeans, of necessarily not having the commercial expertise. But do the Americans, uh, and again, this is a sweeping statement, do the Americans come in with huge knowledge of our broadcasting regulations? Because, of course, if you own an American sports franchise, then being able to get to your audience is a little bit easier, really, because of local TV networks and also, certainly when it comes to NBA and, and MLB, basketball and baseball, you've got so many games that actually you need your local Fox network or NBC network or whatever it may be to take some of those games, When certainly if you're away from home as well. Otherwise, you've got no way of seeing it. Whereas that is a very different market over here. And I wonder whether the second part of that question, Matt, is whether they're also looking at the recent pay-per-view figures and whilst they're still brought in five million quid if if a pay-per-view game's getting less than ten thousand people watching are you really hitting that bigger market well look absolutely i mean there are so many differences between what happens in north america and europe and you've just mentioned one I mean, another one another big one is relegation but 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 the the broadcast picture is 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 massive so one of the key, one of the key things is just the logistics and the geography of north america they have time zones they can do. They can quite easily do. Um, you know, big regional deals. They can do blackouts in cities if the stadiums aren't full. They they can and they do. Um, uh, you've mentioned the number of games they play. They just have a bigger audience. So a really good example would be um, the Thursday night games that that the NFL introduced a few seasons ago. Quite controversial. You know, they already had games on. On, of course, on 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 Sunday and Monday, you know, Saturdays for college football. You know, do we do we do we need another one? Well, you know, we'll, we'll try with a game. It, it it's quite a, it's quite an interesting case study, I think, of 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 how things might develop for our game as well for our games. In that they went for a Thursday night game. It's on a free to air channel. It's on Fox, but it's also streamed. Um, yeah, Amazon have it. Now you would think 
talking to our broadcasters that that could never happen you know what, what you know we need exclusivity that's that's the that's the, that is the, the sky sports story and of course we're not sharing you know that's one of the reasons they sort of grumble about the championship football with i follow and and, and, and their broadcast there but that's because they are talking about an audience of you know 50 60 million people as opposed to 350 million people and um you know what the Thursday night game has proven in the States is a channel like Fox that is going to pay for those rights, very expensive rights with advertising, can do that because it will get a big enough audience to, to bid for those rights. Now, and there's no way that ITV, Channel 4, the BBC could do that if it was also appearing on, on, on a streaming service like it does in the States. Amazon are quite happy with their audience because it suits their purposes, which is all about converting, you know, converting people into shoppers on Amazon. So you have two, not just rival kind of broadcasters, but two delivery mechanisms. Now, that is an advantage North American sport has. So, you know, throw in the complexity around the European Union and our competition laws and, oh, my God, it, the whole, it, it's, it's, it's remarkably different. Going into your second bit of your question, absolutely. Not only the pay-per-view element is, is very, very interesting, but don't forget what one of, the, one of the key bits of Project Big Picture was about the bigger clubs. And don't forget who was driving that, Liverpool, Manchester United, who are they owned by? Americans who have North American sports franchises. They wanted to have more control over some of their games to sell. They wanted to have seven or eight games that they wanted to sell overseas via their own, their own, you know, their own outlets. You know, thin end of the wedge for some, that that is the end of you know, our collective selling of rights. And it's basically what the big boys have wanted for some time because they, they, they think, they know <laughs> that they are going to get a lot more money if they can control those rights and sell to their fans all around the world than your Burnleys and your West Broms and your Fulhams will because they are still basically, their fan base is, is very local. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This podcast dropped on Thursday morning. There is actually a pay-per-view announcement later after uh, after a Premier League um, meeting. So we are recording this before that pay-per-view announcement. Just to widen it a little bit, Adam, as well uh, on the on the wanting to buy a football club. I thought what was quite interesting for all the um, talk about you know my yacht is bigger than your yacht. A really a really interesting discussion with George Colkin. Uh, the Athletics Newcastle man a, a few months ago when when the Saudis were looking to buy Newcastle, one of the things that attracted a lot of locals to that, as well as the promise of lots of big name players coming in, is if they promise to invest in the community and do stuff in the community that nobody else has done for many years, and 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 it has you know, been downtrodden and run into the ground, then 
there is an acceptance and, and a willingness and an enthusiasm to buy into that. You know, and Manchester City, as we've mentioned several times, and Matt knows that we always bring up the Manchester City community project as well when talking about the ownership of City. You know, they they did regenerate an area, whatever you say. Yeah, uh, and and a lot of that comes down to you know. I, th- I think fo- you know football fans often look at you know look at themselves as a, as a collective. We often talk about football fans, I suppose, being quite left wing in, in their thinking in terms of very much collective action, solidarity. But mm-hmm. when it comes to your own football club and your ambitions for it, I, I think most people deep down are quite are quite selfish, and it's a little bit like, okay, what are they going to do for me? Um, are they going to make my team win? Are they going to make my the, the place where I live a better place to live? And if you're ticking those two boxes as an as an owner, I think for most football fans, it's happy days. Um, and we can debate forever whether that's whether that's right ethically or um, or whether football supporters should be more concerned over human rights abuses, over um, you know what, where the the, the sources of it, uh, sources of income are for, for their ownership groups. But you know, for most people, football is an escape. And there's a very fair question as to, is it the duty of, you know, a, a father and son who like to go down on Saturday to, to Stamford Bridge or St. James's Park or Old Trafford and spend the day together because that's what they've done through several generations as to whether it's their obligation or duty to be challenging things that are basically far, far bigger than them um, and that they've really got no control over whatsoever. Um, and, and you can debate that forever. And some people will argue until they're blue in the face, absolutely, they shouldn't give them the money, you should walk away from it. Um, but most people don't. We've seen that you know, repeatedly. Mm. That's the story when even when ownership groups um, really piss off their fans, fans keep coming back. Tens of thousands of people have said to have bought these pay-per-view subscriptions on um, the different uh, digital platforms over the past few weeks. And the greatest strength the Premier League has for all its faults is that fans keep spending money on it. And as long as fans keep spending money on it, there'll be a lot of things that happen that we don't agree with. I think the community element will be really important on this podcast going forward. And as I say, not just football, but but a whole variety of sports. I mean, we are focusing on football uh, today. I know that you were at, the newly formed Macclesfield FC coaching event last night, just to go to to a completely other end of the spectrum, Matt. Yes, I was. Uh, I I live in the area and um, on Sunday evening, Macclesfield FC, who, as many of our listeners will remember, Macclesfield Town were a League Two club last year. Uh, They lost lots of points because of non-payment of wages and various other scandals to do with their appalling owner, Almar Al-Qadi. Um, and in the end, they just lost too many points and they were relegated and it, it all got very contentious. But, um, you know, that's the way it went. Um, and they were supposed to play in the National League this year. al has effectively run out of money. Tried it on one too many times with HMRC, the, the tax authorities here. I think was slightly surprised that, I don't know why he was surprised, but he, he, he clearly was, that if you sort of tell them for the 18th time that, you you know, can I have a bit longer to pay my tax bill? A judge is going to lose his patience. And that's what happened uh, a couple of months ago. The club were, were liquidated just like that. And it, it, it was it came as a real shock, I think, to people because we've had this sort of 
this sense that, that clubs were always given more time and they weren't in this occasion and that was it he, he had he had nowhere else to go and it all unraveled really quickly it was it was even quicker than Barry you know which was sort of a kind of a long drawn out affair um, it, it, it was it was the suddenness of it was was really quite shocking and it seems awful up here I mean it, I think people just it, it blew people away they weren't ready there was no sort of kind of like the fans weren't particularly organized you know Macclesfield you know don't have a big following at the best of times you know, they're surrounded by giants. A lot of the people that sort of follow Macclesfield also kind of, you know, secretly follow City or United or Liverpool. So it didn't get the attention that perhaps it deserved. But anyway, there is there is a happy, I, I think, there's going to be a happy ending here. And, um, you know, at one point it looked like the ground, you know, could be sold to developers. It was on right move for a time because um, it goes to a liquidator and their job is, you know, just to try and raise as much money as they can to pay bills. It was bought by a local businessman, a businessman called Rob Smethurst, who has made his money in the sort of car trade, but but has a pro football academy or one of these sort of private academies. A successful guy, local, as I said, loves football, clearly loves football. And one of his partners at this academy is Rob, Robbie Savage, you know, known, known, to, known to several of us, um, you know, very prominent uh, figure in the British media. You know, coaches one of his sides, again, lives locally, very, very committed to, to youth football. And the, the two of those guys and some, some, other, some other people have, have bought the club, got it, got it off the ground. I mean, not in time to play this season, because there's always a sort of conversation about where Phoenix clubs go back in the pyramid. That's a conversation they're having right now. And, you know, is it going to be the ninth, 10th, 8th tier? We shall see. But, but everything else they've got spectacularly right. And as an example of that was last night and the night before. So on Sunday, when Boris Johnson said, look, guys, we're going back into second lockdown and it looks like kind of grassroots sport is off. They put a tweet out saying any local team in the area, we're going to open up Moss Rose the ground on Monday and Tuesday evening between five and nine. First come, first serve, youth football. Uh, you get a quarter of the pitch each for an hour. And I hear they got 300 teams. Robbie Savage retweeted it, which obviously helped. And, you know, the first 30 odd through the door got in my under 11 side I, I coach a, a local team we, we, we got in I, I sort of was just playing with my phone on Sunday evening and, and saw it and thought oh yes that'd be great but we absolutely loved it they got to train under the floodlights on a league pitch up until yeah, absolutely. three months ago absolutely. four months ago yeah yeah and um, you know it just it, a real sort of sense I just thought look this is this is what this club I think is going to be about because he's going to use it as it's a really clever business model that I think Smithurst and Savage are going to go for which is they, they as I say they have this academy business it's going to become the shop window for their kind of locally sourced players they're going to put a 4G pitch down so it, not only was it an opportunity to play on this pitch it was possibly the last time you know yeah. normal people were going to play on this grass pitch because that's coming up now you know people might go oh, I'm not sure about that but actually it makes complete sense for non-league football because one of the things that kills small football clubs is the fact that their facilities only use 30 times a year you want that facility you want to sweat the asset as they say so they want they're going to improve the bars they've already started work on that they're going to put a gym in there they've got they've worked out they've got some office space they're never using they're going to turn the the club the stadium that sits there as i say for most clubs empty for for most of the year they want it they want it used 24 7 365 which i completely agree with and i just thought you know what, you have re-engaged with the community in the space of about two weeks and you've got a plan that is going to work. So I was really yeah. impressed. Well, it becomes a community hub, doesn't it? Which Completely actually agree. brings us right back to where we started with, with Adam, talking about why would you want to own a, a football club and, and whether the days of the Mr Local big person have 
have disappeared maybe lower down they most definitely haven't i think lower down it's it's becoming really interesting because you know you look in the championship i think half over half the owners in the championship now are uh, from abroad and there's examples as well in league one league two we've got you know, it sounds like Ryan Reynolds, the Hollywood star, was about to go in at Wrexham. Um, <laughs> Tim Howard and Peter Freund, American investors, um, have gone into Dagenham and Redbridge. So I think there is this this element of if you're pretty rich and can afford to lose a couple of million pounds a year and want to have a bit of fun and you want to take a club on a journey, and I, think, I suppose Salford City is not dissimilar to that as well, you can probably go in at League 2, National League level now, and rise up quite quickly with a bit of investment. I think where it's going to become harder and harder is for that you know, that local figure who was, I suppose, traditionally seen almost quite philanthropically, you know, who would be the local owner of, of a business, and then the guys from the factory had come down and support the team. I think that is, that is disappearing from the game. It was quite interesting last week... Uh, uh, interviewed the CEO of Istanbul Basak Sahir, who are yeah. in Manchester United's Champions League group, and that, that, he was explaining how you know in Turkey there's still very very little foreign ownership at all, and obviously a lot of the models are a bit like Spain and, and Portugal. It's um, supporter led, and then they have votes and presidents. But you know, as much as we would all like to have probably greater democracy at our football clubs, he was explained that's actually a massive problem because you end up with presidents who are trying to win favour from the fans, which leads to overspending and promises that aren't kept. So there's there's no real perfect ownership model yet, I don't think, which has been which has been proven. And and there's also I mean there's all sorts of issues which people would raise as well with Istanbul Basak Sahir and their links with um the Turkish president Erdogan as well. So there's a lot of different ownership models being worked on at the moment, not just in in the Premier League, Football League, but across across Europe. And I don't think anyone has really got it to an extent where supporters are fully happy. I mean, even Liverpool with FSG, they've made missteps, I think, you know, um, whether it was over furlough um, and certainly earlier on in, on in their reign, it would be really, interest, really interesting to see how they go when their figurehead Jurgen Klopp is no longer at the club, whether they continue to make good decisions off the field, so uh, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of really challenging points coming up. And and also just a final point here, Matt, and then we'll wrap this for this week. And and Adam talked about say Salford as a model and going through the leagues. Not everybody necessarily wants to go through the leagues and I know that may sound a, a, a quite a ridiculous thing to say but bearing in mind you know success is is one one of the key components I suppose of a, of a sports club but I can remember being at Sutton United who are in the National League and when they were on a their brilliant cup run three years ago maybe something like that and they had Arsenal down there didn't they and they beat Leeds and so on and so forth and they have a 4G pitch and I can remember talking to people at Sutton the three or four times I was down there and they actually said no we, we think we're at our level in the National League because if we if we go up and we have to rip our 4G pitch up then that completely alters it for this whole community and we think we are where we ought to be and running it how we ought to be running it. Well, well absolutely. I think you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there when you said at our level. I mean, we're, we're, I think we have to be realistic as fans. I mean, I, you know, I support Southend United. We're not at our level right now, I absolutely assure you, which is the worst team in the, in the, in the 92. <laughs> That's not our level. But it's where we are at the moment. Could Southend United be a Premier League team? 
Um, well, certainly not right now, but, um, you know, could, could they theoretically? Uh, unlikely in my lifetime, unless sort of, you know, the demographics of this nation continue to sort of drift towards the southeast and South End becomes as big as, I don't know, you know, Sheffield, or perhaps not as big as Sheffield, but you know what I mean? Yeah, if, yeah. if the demographic shift towards the southeast continues, could, could a place like South End, a big town effectively, sustain a Premier League team? Yeah, but it's not in our history, it's not in our brand. People from down there, kind of support West Ham and Arsenal and Spurs. So it, it's it's not it's not really our level. Could we be a championship team? Well, in my lifetime as a Southend fan, we've had a couple of stints in the championship. You know, one one was a decent stint, one was brief. I would say that's the top end of where we are. I'd like us to be a League One team. So you have a level. And of course, just working that out and being realistic with your fan base and what you're trying to do. You know, are you kind of a a really good community club that is realistic and honest. I'm thinking of places like Rotherham and Burton that, have, that, are, that are, are well considered within football. You know, are you a, you, are you a Luton that are sort of, you know, rising up from, from really struggling times and just get lots of things right in terms of what they're doing with their ground and their training ground and developing players. Barnsley, young team in the championship, managed to defeat, defy the odds last year with a tiny wage bill, developing loads and loads of young talent. Brentford, great story there. Could they be a Premier League team? Maybe. Maybe there's a, there's a team that I have seen South End play, and I would have considered us to be peers for for you know for for much of my lifetime. But we're clearly not now because Brentford have just gone on this incredible decade of just getting decisions right. They are now playing in an amazing new ground. They've got a fantastic new side, a fantastic young side. They sold whatever it was, fifty million pounds worth of talent over the summer, and yet they're still good. I mean, I just look at a club like Brentford and go, you know, wow, you know, great decision making. Fantastic, good for you. So, look, clubs ha- know you know, you know know your station, but but equally, if you get lots of decisions right and you do it over time, yes, you can sustainably climb the ladder. And that you know to to go big picture, we were talking about the Americans and what we have and what they what many of them that get us like is our pyramid. They don't have it at home because they have a completely different system and relegation would just kill their business model. But here we have it and it it, it it brings interest at both ends of the table. We don't have many dead rubbers because of relegation. It brings it brings a sort of existential jeopardy to, to our game that I think is appealing. And our pyramid, even within European soccer, even in European football, sorry, is 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 something we should be proud of, that it goes all the way down, fifth, sixth, seventh tier. People are going to watch live football now. Well, they were before the second lockdown anyway. I was very tempted a couple of weekends ago to go see Buxton because a lot of the Mac Town guys are going to see Buxton. They're, they're a seventh tier team doing pretty well. It just rained too much, so I didn't go. But the point is, we will go watch football at that level and we should we should be proud of that matt adam thank you very much hopefully this has given you a, a taster of where we're going with this brand new uh, business of sport podcast sport football business media politics uh, we can go in any single direction with our team of writers from the athletic and also with special guests over the coming weeks uh, thank you very much for listening to read all the articles that we discussed on today's podcast in full all you have to do is head to www.theathletic.com slash ornstein and Chapman to sign up for just £1 a week. Ornstein and Chapman uh, back at the beginning of next week and the Business of Sport podcast will drop every single Thursday on this feed. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. 